Good morning, everybody. We're extremely blessed today to have two special guests, retired Air Force Lieutenant General John Bradley and his wife, Jan, who are founders of the Lamia Afghan Foundation, have worked in Afghanistan for a number of years, have been extremely highly active with events in the last couple of weeks. We're also joined by correspondent Cheryl Mann Bacon, who's the retired journalism chair at Abilene Christian University, has been talking with the Bradleys for a few weeks now, has written a couple of stories that have I know a lot of you have already read. And so we're just excited about the opportunity this morning just to talk, maybe tell us a little bit about your Christian background, just some of those early stories. My father was a minister. I came from a Christian family. My mother was, you know, preacher's wife. I mean, <laughs> they were both educated at David Lipscomb University. And I can't remember a preacher one told my mother, he says, Mary Pitts, you're too much of a socialite. You'll never make a great uh, preacher's wife. And she said, I'll show you. <laughs> And she did. So my grandmother, my grandfather, we all come from a very strong Christian background. So when I met John in, in Louisiana and I found out that he was a member of the Church of Christ and I thought, um, I think this is going to work, work out. Did y'all meet at an Air Force base or where did, where did y'all meet? Yeah. I'll tell you uh, the story briefly, but let me just say a little more about Jan and her family. Okay. He said they met at Lipscomb. Her father was working in the bookstore. He met her mother there and, and they got married. So uh, after they finished school, she was going to be a concert pianist, but that didn't pan out. She was very good on the piano. Both of us have deep, deep ties to uh, the Churches of Christ. I was on the board of trustees at Lipscomb University for five years uh, until about three or four years ago. And uh, Love the school, and it's a it's just a remarkable school today. Abilene is a remarkable school. Our daughter went to Abilene. Uh, we live in Nashville now. I was raised 30 miles from here in Lebanon. Served 41 years in the Air Force. So we were at Air. I was in the Air Force base. Had been back from Vietnam two or three years. Uh, I'd flown combat missions in Vietnam and uh, left the regular Air Force. Joined the Air Force Reserve. I was at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. We went to the Blanchard Church of Christ after Jan and I were married, but we met at the Air Force Base because Jan got a job as a secretary there to a personnel officer, and after she was there for a few months, somebody told me about this young woman over there, and uh, so I finally got up the nerve to meet her and ask her for uh, her phone number and called her for a date, and the rest is history. We got, we got married 10 and a half months later. I was almost 30. She was almost 27, and we've been married 46 years now. Oh, wow. So tell us a little bit um, about how you decided to begin the foundation. Um, you were in the Air Force for a long time before your first assignment to Afghanistan, I assume. Um, and then how long had you been going to Afghanistan before you got the foundation started? Okay. I want to make sure everyone understands. I was never sent to Afghanistan for combat operations. I was a somewhat senior officer, a lieutenant general in the Air Force. I was the commander of the Air Force Reserve. So I had a lot of hundreds and thousands at different times of my Air Force Reserve airmen deployed to Afghanistan. So as a senior officer, a commander, it was my responsibility to visit them periodically. And I did that five times in a four-year period. 
going over for four or five days at a time, again, I was not the combat people they were. I was just visiting them, thanking them for going, asking them to volunteer again, asking what we could do to prepare them better. And uh, briefly, on one trip, my third trip there, I saw this uh, volunteer operation going on at this huge American air base north of Kabul, about an hour north of Kabul, Bagram Air Base, of volunteer airmen and soldiers who in their off-duty time were giving um, humanitarian aid things, toys, clothing, blankets, school supplies to women and children off the base as they would come for some medical care on the base. So they were getting things from their churches and schools and, and uh, families from home mailed to them. Uh, they would hand out those supplies to them. I saw that going on. I participated in it. I came home and I told Jan about it. She went out to thrift shops, schools, churches, everywhere she could to get items donated. 40,000 pounds later, our house at Bowling Air Force Base in Washington looked like a Goodwill store. And uh, she boxed up 40,000 pounds of things and we put it on an Air Force cargo plane that was taking me to Afghanistan again. And uh, this was not entirely legal because I didn't have any permission to uh, take this cargo, but we did it. And uh, so I took this to Afghanistan and gave it to these folks at Bagram, the soldiers and airmen, and they would be able to hand that out. So I went out into a village with some security people to hand out a few things, some blankets and jackets. It was wintertime, it was December, and this little nine-year-old girl broke through this line of boys and Lamia was her name. She came through, begged me for boots. She was wearing sandals. She had a tattered sweater on. She was had a face that looked like she was years older, nine years old, and she begged me for boots. I didn't have any for her. Came home, told Jan about her. We went shopping for her, four boxes of stuff with blankets and boots and different sizes and all kinds of things. We sent to her a vino lotion for her face because it was so chapped and, and wrinkled at nine years old. We sent all that to her, wrote her a letter and said, I hope this helps you. We sent it to the security people at the base. They took it to her. And uh, then I went back on a trip eight months later, a couple of months before I retired. And they brought her to the base with her uncle and a local policeman. We fed her in the dining hall. I had taken 15 boxes of things to her this time and a bicycle. And um, so the rest is history. Meanwhile, back in the Air Force in Washington, I had been contacted by the American Red Cross to interview to be their president and CEO. It didn't work out. I had two interviews. I was in the finals. I wasn't selected, but it put an idea in my head. Maybe we should do some nonprofit work. I didn't want to go into any kind of business. I'm not business oriented. I didn't want to go sell things to my friends in the Pentagon. I didn't want to be a consultant or a, work for a defense company. I'd done 41 years for the uh, US Air Force and I thought that was enough. So Jan and I had a five minute conversation about what we'd do when I retired in August, 2008. And it was, why don't we just keep trying to help people in Afghanistan? So we started our little nonprofit, chartered in Tennessee, got our 501c3 from the IRS and we called it the Lamia Afghan Foundation. We build schools, we send humanitarian aid, we put legs on kids. Jan and I have gone to Afghanistan seven times since I retired. We have no security. We don't get to stay on military bases. We get no priority for anything. Dan, did you ever get to meet Lamia? Yes. And do y'all have any ongoing contact with her? Do you know how her family's doing? Yes, we do. They're, they're struggling. They want to get out of the country. You know, Lamia's cousin worked for the Ministry of Economy and one of his, one of his very good friends who worked in the Ministry of Economy was uh, murdered by the Taliban. So he's 
those very threatened. And because Lamia's face is on social media and is connected with an American NGO, um, her, she's just known across the country. So they feel like she may be threatened as well. How um, old is she now? She's 22, 23. We had a video call with her two weeks ago. Oh, we really? Touched with her. We visited her home 15 times on our trips there. We're with her a lot. So people in the village, even Taliban around that area would know, oh, there are Americans in this little, this is a village of mud houses, okay? That's, that's what rural Afghanistan is like. And so everybody knows there are these Americans there paying attention to this family over the years. Now, we haven't been there in seven years, but they have long memories. Yeah. And in addition, with the current situation now in Afghanistan with the Taliban, they're looking to take young girls from widows, marrying them into the Talibs, handing them on down the line to their brothers. So we're, we're concerned about Lamia, but she is, her father is deceased now. We're trying to get a young the family woman, out. So there are many reasons, and there are 27 members in that family. Cousins, I mean, uncles, cousins, nephews. And the first trip we made, we visited Lamia and our focus was to get Lamia in school. We wanted her to be educated. We sat down with the village elders. We sat down with the family. We were seated in the back of the room. We talked to the elders. We talked to the, all these old men. And of course, they sat in a row and nodded their heads. Yes, we want our girls to be educated. And of course, we want our women to be literate. Well, time after time after time, we went back again. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Um, and little did we know, but one and a half miles down the road, there was already a school where little girls were attending. It was just this particular village, and I don't know why. They were not telling us the truth. They really didn't want Lamia to be educated. They wanted us to buy land that they owned for $20,000. Americans cannot own land in Afghanistan. Land is given to the government if a school is to be built. So I, our greatest disappointment in all these many years is not being able to educate Lamia, but we've been able because of her to educate tens of thousands of girls who have gone to school, educated. Some of them have gone into universities. So we, we don't regret Anything that we've done, we're, we're happy, we're proud, we're sorry, we're disheartened, we're brokenhearted about what's happened to Afghanistan. But we think about those girls and their education, Taliban can't take that away from them. You know, it's, it's in their heart, it's in their soul, it's in their minds. So we, we're, we're happy about what was accomplished uh, with our teams, our volunteer teams on the ground with our supporters, our donors. We don't fundraise. We just have told the story about the plight of the Afghans and people have been so generous to help us carry on our work. So we're, we're so grateful, but we're, we're worried about our friends. We're worried about our volunteers. We're worried about our partners. We're worried about women judges and journalists and media people and interpreters, we're concerned about all those people who are still in the country and hiding. 
So what John was talking about over the last week, 10 days, we've been working 18 hour days. It's been difficult to get this information over with the hope of providing hope for our people. About the schools, about the education she talked about for girls. Two weeks ago, we finished building in Western Afghanistan, our seventh school. It was going to be for 1,100 girls. The school was finished on a Saturday. On Sunday, the Taliban took over Kabul. Monday, the next day, these 1,100 girls were supposed to go to school. And of course, they have. So just finished building a school, and uh, it couldn't open for these 1,100 girls. We're hopeful that maybe Maybe they will allow the school to open later. We're hopeful that we can still do some work. Every penny that's donated goes to the work in Afghanistan. No one in Afghanistan gets paid. There are no overhead expenses in our 501c3 nonprofit. My wife and I, when we travel to Afghanistan, I, I, uh, we pay our own way. I joke that it's out of our daughter's inheritance, my retirement pay, not foundation money for our travel, our lodging, our food. None of the work in Afghanistan is done with... Uh, no one there earns any money. It's all volunteer here and there. I'm curious. I mean, John, you mentioned flying combat missions in Vietnam, and I'm assuming in 41 years in the Air Force, you were in a lot of countries. What was it about Afghanistan? Was it that one little girl? Was there something else that just touched your hearts in that situation that it's kind of made this your life's mission at this point? While I was in, I've been a lot of places. I've been a lot of bad places. When the Black Hawk Down episode took place, I was flying uh, on a cargo plane taking uh, aid into Somalia while uh, one person was still being held prisoner and was released. And I, my airplane almost flew him out, but they changed their mind and kept him overnight medically. So I've been to Somalia, which is a bad place. I've been to Haiti. I've been to uh, Cambodia and Vietnam, of course on the ground, both places. I've been to Afghanistan and I have, and listen, there is horrible devastation in all of those places and terrible conditions for people in all of those places. But I think Afghanistan in many ways might be worse than all the others because they've endured 40 years of war. A 40 year old in Afghanistan has known nothing but war. And that's not true of all those other places. And certainly Sudan and Yemen and many, many, I mean, there is, a lot of tragedy go down, but I'm telling you, the only thing that, that did this for me, that turned the, the switch for us was little Amia begging me for boots. I was just thinking of the significance of the dates that we've talked. Um, the, the first day that we talked was that Sunday uh, that the Taliban took over. And then the second day we talked was the day of the tragic um, explosion at the gate that killed 13 American service members. Um, and then today is the first full day after the um, American forces have been entirely pulled out. Um, in that second conversation, um, you told me about a family that had been separated at the gate. And Jan, I think that they were relatives of a good friend of yours. Um, and at that point, after the explosion, the, you knew that the parents were alive, but you didn't know where they were. You knew that there was a... Uh, boy, I believe he was 14 years old, who was at the gate by himself, still hoping to get in. And there were two missing children. I think they were six and 11. Can, Jan, can you tell us a little bit about how you knew that family and what you know today about their status? 
I knew that family through the father's sister. I don't remember how we were connected. It was just connected through um, other NGOs who were doing work in Afghanistan. She made her way to the United States by herself years ago, not knowing a soul, but just smart, persevered, got herself a job, got involved in humanitarian aid efforts and got connected with me and has helped John and me organize some Ramadan campaigns and some campaigns to address humanitarian aid uh, conditions like flooding and earthquakes. And she's just a wonderful person to coordinate with. So we've become really good friends. So she called me. I, I couldn't understand a word she said. She was crying so badly. I said, slow down, slow down, honey, and tell me what's going on. And she told me about this suicide bombing. And she said, I don't know where my family is. And I, I think my, my nephew is at the gate. And I, I, you know, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, honey, let me, let me talk to John. She was told that her, the father and mother were dead on the ground, which was not accurate at the moment. And then, you know, the situation changed and the stories changed. And pretty soon we learned about the 14-year-old being close to the gate. We contacted a friend of ours who has a lot of contacts on the ground. He called this 14-year-old boy and he said, stay where you are. We're going to try to get you out. Try to be calm. I think your parents are out but I can't find my brother and sister. I don't know where they are. And um, so I, then John got involved. So I'll let him tell you where we are right now with okay. regard to that family. So what happened is the 14 year old stayed at the gate as Jan said, uh, until uh, several hours later, Taliban people told him, you need to leave this area. So he took a taxi and went to an empty house. It may have been a house that someone they knew owned. I don't know for sure yet. The father and mother were taken to the to a hospital. The mother died that night. The father lived. The father got back with the son in that safe house, and we've moved them a couple of times, and now they're in a safe house, and we're going to try to deal with them. I tried and tried and tried numerous ways through political pressure, public pressure, through the media, New York Times stories, uh, talking to the White House, talking to senators and congressmen, and uh, everybody I could get contact with to try to get the father and son extracted from Kabul, uh, along with the other Afghans that were leaving and American citizens that were leaving, but I, it, to no avail. We've tried to get 500 people out of there and uh, no one uh, got out except two tiny children, uh, I'll mention now, their children. So um, this family had gone, the woman in Alexandria, who is now an American citizen, asked me and Jan to apply to get the whole family evacuated. They had not been called by the State Department to go to the airport. They had not been called by the Defense Department. We sent forms to both places, along with forms for 500 other people. And uh, I gave them a copy of the documents, this father, wife, and three children. They went there, and that's why they were there when the suicide bombing took place. So father and son are in a house in Kabul now. The mother has died. She's been buried in Kabul. The two little children, uh, it turns out, Dr. Bacon, they're not uh, six and 11, they're seven and 13, I think it is now. But anyway, so a neighbor was with them at the gate, at the airport. He was not trying to leave apparently, but he picked these two children up that were injured slightly, carried them to the gate. And for some unknown reason, I'm, I'm shocked after a, an explosion, 
the soldiers and Marines at the gate let them in, took them to the medical facility that had been set up for the 5,000 troops on the airport grounds, got them treated, put them on an Air Force C-17 that was flying to Remstein Air Base, Germany. I'm just stunned that they were brought onto the airport grounds after this explosion. The neighbor and those two children were on that airplane. The children are at the Landstuhl Regional Medical Center, a huge American hospital uh, in Germany. That's where anyone who's injured in that part of the world or in Africa is sent, or soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan were sent before they were brought to Walter Reed in Washington. So the children are there, they're being treated. I get videos and photos of them every day in the hospital. No one at the hospital will talk to me because I am not family. It's a, it's a hospital thing, it's a HIPAA law thing, it's an army thing. They are okay, but we are making some progress through other means to uh, talk to the State Department folks that will help coordinate their movement hopefully soon. I got a message just a few minutes before this meeting uh, from someone at the White House who says they are talking to State Department, et cetera, et cetera, and consular officials, and will hopefully put them in the flow with other Afghan refugees. So briefly, let me tell you, when we were flying people on U.S. airplanes out of Kabul, they were going to either Qatar or to Ramstein Air Base, Germany. So there are thousands of Afghans on the tarmac in tents at Ramstein Air Base, and they are being flown quickly by U.S. airlines that the president has activated, a thing called the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, where he can say in an emergency, I want United American uh, Delta whatever to provide X number of airplanes and crews to do some emergency national work. And so they are then flying these Afghan refugees to Dulles Airport and perhaps other places in the United States. I'm not aware of where, beyond Dulles, but a lot of Afghans are coming back to Dulles in Washington. All I wanna do is get these two children with their closest relative because their father and uh, the brother, the son in Kabul will not get out for a long time or be in America if ever, it'll be months or who knows. Unknown. I'm working that angle. That's a different thing. But I'm just trying to get these two little children. Get, we want to get them with their aunt, who's an American citizen in, in Alexandria, Virginia, and her their grandpa, the children's grandparents right there with her. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get media attention through anybody that has any media influence. We're trying to get public attention to this only to reunite a family. Jan, I don't want any publicity for anything. I'm just trying to help this family get reunited. Then we're going to keep working on the other 500 people who have worked with us or that we know in Afghanistan that want to leave. And that's a more difficult thing now that the U.S. is not in uh, Afghanistan. So we'll work it other ways. But the aunt and the grandparents are in Virginia? Correct. Yes. In an apartment. Okay. They live. Okay. So we're trying to help them. We just want to get these two young children in Germany with them, the grandparents and the, and the aunt. We, we, there's been a lot of chaos and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of tragedy, but I keep finding myself stunned that they got out 120,000 people. Um, I think that's the largest airlift rescue in the nation's history, um, probably at any point in the world's history. Um, 120,000 is about the size of the city that I live in. Yes. How many more do you think want out? Thousands, tens of thousands, frankly. Listen, 
what I've just told you is we were trying to get about 500 people out. Only two got out, only because there was an explosion. And, and it, those two didn't get out because of the work we did to, uh, I mean, they weren't contacted, these two children, or the only ones that got out as by happenstance, of course, because we were trying to get the family out. Uh, so I, I can tell you, I know a lot of people, I'm working with a lot of people right now, Jan is too, trying to get people overland out of the country because they want to leave. I mean, I know doctors, wonderful young people. We set up a medical clinic for women in the Eastern city of Jalalabad. A Nashville doctor donated a um, ultrasound, an ultrasound machine, excuse me, to Healing Hands Incorporated here in Nashville, who we've worked with for years. They are the most wonderful organization. I'm sure a lot of your viewers and listeners know who I'm talking about. And they gave us that ultrasound machine. We airlifted it to Afghanistan. There's a wonderful federal law that allows humanitarian aid to go to Afghanistan or any country, I'm sorry, to go to any country free on military airplanes on a space available basis. It's not because I was a Lieutenant General in the Air Force. Anybody in America can do this for nonprofit purposes to any country that we fly to. It's not easy, it's not complicated, it's not Federal Express, it doesn't get there overnight, but it gets there and it's free. We've sent three and a half million pounds to Afghanistan of humanitarian aid of different kinds, food, clothing, blankets, et cetera, et cetera. This ultrasound machine, we sent a full-size ambulance donated by the city of Chicago to a medical clinic we built in Western Afghanistan, an ambulance to Herat. And it was driven to this medical clinic in a village in Western Afghanistan. It's a wonderful federal law, and we've taken advantage of it to get three and a half million pounds to help people. Food mostly has been the biggest help, blankets and jackets. So uh, that's the kind of work we do. But Healing Hands has been a partner for us. They gave us so many things. They gave us storage space, workspace. When we were first starting this, they would pay for trucking our things to Air Force bases so we could, uh, they would pay for the trucking of our things to go to an Air Force base so it could be moved to Afghanistan under this Denton program, it's called. I, I know that you you talked about the school that was ready to open um, the day before the Taliban took over that has not opened. Um, the other schools that you've built in the past years, the clinics that you have built, what do you know about whether any of them are still operational? They are not at the present time. Some people are telling us that they might, might allow the schools to open. Let me just note for one thing, this young man, that this a doctor in Western Afghanistan that oversaw the building of our last two schools. One was for 600 orphan children in Western Afghanistan and this one for 1,100 girls that has not yet opened. A doctor, we helped him go through medical school in Afghanistan. His brother worked for us and was murdered by the Taliban for working for us. This man, this doctor's father was kidnapped by the Taliban and held for ransom for several months. He was released. So his brother was killed by the Taliban and he's working for us. Think about how much, he's got a, a one month old baby at home and, and another child. The first person in Kabul who built our first three schools, uh, Shawali Warnock, was murdered by the Taliban with an explosive device on an electric box that opened the gate to his house. Every house in Afghanistan, whether you have money or don't have money, has a wall around it. He has had an electric gate that would open and he was murdered. He was a member of parliament. He 
is the brother of the minister of education for whom we built schools so that the ministry could run those schools. We built schools for them. He was murdered by the Taliban, a doctor we know, our best friend in Afghanistan, and frankly, the best person I've ever known in my life, other than perhaps my wife, Dr. Jerry Manos, who worked in Afghanistan for uh, eight years, teaching Afghan doctors how to deliver babies, saving Afghan uh, babies and mothers in childbirth, probably has saved more lives in Afghanistan than any American I know. He was murdered by the Taliban at work after eight years there. We've lost a lot of great friends. So um, I have two or three other questions, but, but as you talk about him, and as we talked about him on the phone a few weeks ago, uh, I can tell that's a very, very emotional subject. How are y'all doing? <laughs> We're working on adrenaline. We've been working three weeks, 20 hours a day. Like I said, our daughter came down and helped us for eight days taking off of work. I mean, I get hyped up in the late afternoon. I guess it's just adrenaline. I'm, we're tired. We, we're not getting much rest, but we're not giving up. We're going to keep doing everything we can to help people. I don't know how we're doing. I don't ever give up hope. I was, I was deeply disappointed that the uh, airlift ended. There are going to be a lot of uh, people that talk and review what's gone on the last few months, last few years. Of course, everybody thinks they know the right answers of what should have been done, what could have been done. Listen, I remember seeing the movie Saigon 1975, you know, the evacuation there. Um, and people say, well, we should have started this, air, this evacuation effort before we pulled the troops out. That's my opinion. I don't know what the right answer is. I'm not one of those really smart guys. I'm just, uh, I'm trying to help people. And I, I was hopeful that all of the information we sent to the State Department and to the Department of Defense, to the Joint Staff Afghan NEO cell, NEO, non-combatant evacuation operation. They collect information to contact families to tell them to go to the airport. None of it paid off for our families. Uh, no one got called. I don't know why. I don't think the the information we sent went to outer space, but I don't know where it went and I don't know what was done with it. There's, there's a lot we don't know. Um, I, I, we, you've commented about your speculation about how things could have happened in, in past situations. It, you know, there's been so much conversation. Would this have been different five years ago or five years from now? Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? There's a great book, The Great Game by Peter Hopker about everything from Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, to the Russians, to the Indians, to the British, who've tried to conquer and occupy Afghanistan. No one has been successful. No one ever will be, I don't think. There's a great saying in Afghanistan, Americans have the watches, we have the time. There's a lot of truth in that. And what we should have done, instead of take, you know, when the Taliban was driven out at the end of 2001, well, America, kind of the attitude was, in uh, everywhere, the military, the, the administration, Afghanistan's handled, handled. Now let's start looking at Iraq. So the eye was off the ball in my view. I think we could have done some things over the next couple of years in Afghanistan and been gone, let them set up their own government. The Taliban wouldn't have been a part of it. And we wouldn't have had 2,300 troops killed in Afghanistan. It would have been maybe a whole different situation that's water over the dam now, nothing we can do about it, but I do believe that uh, we've handled this wrong in many ways. I know there'll be a lot of history about it, but 
you asked what we think about, I think we didn't handle it well after the Taliban was driven from power in 2001. It, could have, it should have been differently. And we didn't pay enough attention because all the attention in the administration, all of the attention, believe me, I was there. I was working at some, I was working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay? I was assistant to the chairman. The focus in the entire administration was on Iraq. So it could have been different, I think. Uh, I'm disappointed in a lot of things, but there's nothing we can do about the past. You asked if we're hopeful, I'm hopeful. I'm gonna keep trying to help. I'm hoping we can still do some work for with our foundation in Afghanistan. I want, uh, I will use what we can if we need to, uh, if we can't do the work there to try to help Afghan refugees who will have incredible resettlement uh, difficulties in the United States. You know, there are some people who are welcoming and some who aren't, but I'm hopeful. And I've been, I've had people reach out to me elders, members of churches all over. Uh, yesterday, a doctor who's an elder at Memorial Road Church in Oklahoma City called me. We had a wonderful conversation. He said, I have two bedrooms in my home. If you need some Afghans to resettle in my home, they are welcome. A doctor in Oklahoma City, 2,000 member church, he told me. I've heard of that particular congregation, of course. People are, there are good hearted Americans who want to help. And if we can, we'll help them. We'll do the best we can. I think the pressing issue right now, I mean, the Afghans are coming into the United States. That's, that's one issue. The more pressing issue in Afghanistan now, people have no jobs. They're hungry. They're starving. We need to take care of those people who are left behind. So the funds that we are receiving now, we are trying to get to Afghanistan to feed people. Two days ago, that 14-year-old boy in Kabul with his father in hiding that we're going to try to get out and hopefully someday with his little children. He sent a video to the to his aunt in Alexandria who sent it to me. 14-second video. Please thank Grandpa Bradley for trying to reunite my family. This is a 14-year-old in hiding in Kabul, and he's sending, you know, they call us mom and pop. The children, their children call us grandpa and grandma. Please thank Grandpa Bradley for trying to help us. I mean, think about that. That's a keeper for me. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great place to stop. Um, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for being very generous with your time with us and at the Christian Chronicle. Um, and uh, I'll hope to stay in touch with you and learn more about what is ahead for the Lamia Foundation. Uh, I know that that's a little bit in suspense even at the moment, but we'll be back in touch to talk about that again later. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. We're Thank so you for your to attention to an important subject. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye. 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 This episode of Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Bobby Ross Jr., edited and produced by Peter Freebie. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.